Commissioner of Indian Affairs Cato Sells opened his 1917 annual report to the Secretary of the Interior by touting the beneficial effects of what he called a new and far-reaching policy to guide Indian affairs during his administration. Although I view this policy as more of an extension or an expansion of the existing uh, federal policies of allotment and assimilation, Sells, I think, was right to highlight the significance of this policy, uh, which focused uh, aggressively on the elimination of trust protections on Indian allotments nationwide. As Jill noted in her talk, under the 1887 Dawes Act, Congress intended to break up reservations into individual allotments um, and to give individual Indian allottees what were called trust patents. Now, under these trust patents, the U.S. government promised to hold the lands in trust for the allottees for 25 years, during which time the lands could not be sold, taxed, mortgaged, or leased, except under uh, fairly restrictive federal leasing regulations. <clears throat> now, Sell's 1917 policy really sought to do two things. One was to discontinue what he termed guardianship of all quote-unquote competent Indians, and two, to provide closer attention to quote incompetent Indians in order to give them a strong motive to speedily achieve competency, as he put it. One of the primary means by which he attempted to do this was by giving quote-unquote competent Indians untrammeled control or freedom over their lands that did not include the trust restrictions that the Dawes Act outlined. <clears throat> In particular, Sell's 1917 policy called for the issuance of fee patents and the, uh, the breakdown of, of trust restrictions for all Indian allottees who had less than one-half Indian blood. Additionally, he called for fee patents to, issued, fee patents to be issued to all Indians of one-half or more Indian blood who may, after careful investigation by, by what were later termed competency commissions, after they were found competent. Sells also called for more liberal rules regarding the sale of inherited allotments. Putting aside Sells' unabashedly paternalistic and racist language, his policy represented the apex, or depending on your perspective, perhaps the low point of the U.S.'s forced fee patenting policy of the early 20th century. According to historian Janet McDonnell in her book, The Dispossession of the American Indian, she noted that <clears throat> in the first 18 months after Sell's 1917 declaration of policy, the U.S. issued fee patents to Indian allottees covering more than one million acres nationwide, a greater acreage than it had fee patented during the previous decade or 10 years combined. By 1920, when Sell's declaration of policy was finally overturned by his successor, the BIA had issued a reported 17,000 fee patents to Indian allottees nationwide. To get a sense of how this, how this policy uh, and how the assimilationist policies of the federal government affected uh, flathead reservation lands, we have to go back a little over more than half a century to the 1855 Hellgate Treaty, Article 6 of which 
uh, allowed the president to survey and assign allotments to those individuals or families who were, quote, willing to avail themselves of the privilege. Notably, however, no allotments were made under, the, under this Article VI provision. Thirty years after the Hellgate Treaty, Congress passed the Dawes Act, as Jill mentioned, which authorized the president to survey and allot lands within any Indian reservation whenever he believed that such lands were advantageous for allotments. <clears throat> allotment sizes ranged from 40 acres to 160 acres, depending on whether a per the person receiving them was a child under 18 or a head of a family. And Congress allowed smaller allotments to be made on reservations that didn't contain sufficient lands. And as mentioned previously, trust patents would be issued to all allottees, declaring that the U.S. would hold the land in trust for the sole use and benefit of the Indian to whom such allotment shall have been made for 25 years. At the end of the 25-year trust period, the, the U.S. would convey the lands in fee discharged of said trust. However, Congress did authorize the president to extend the trust period on all allotments in, with his, in his discretion. <coughs> Despite the president's sweeping authority to allot lands, allot Indian lands nationwide, the Dawes Act, however, did not result in the immediate allotting of, of reservations. Typically, federal officials tended to try to, to pair the allotment of lands on reservation with the agreement of tribes to, uh, to seed, seed lands that were not allotted, so-called surplus lands. The pairing of allotment with land sessions reflected the broader intent of the Dawes Act, which was to break down the reservation system. <clears throat> In 1896, Congress authorized this type of land session slash allotment uh, commission to negotiate an agreement with not only the tribes at the Flathead Reservation, but also nearby reservations in Idaho, Utah, and eastern Washington. Over the next five years, the commission visited the Flathead Reservation three times and were rebuffed each time by tribal leaders who, who refused to sell any portion of the reservation, according to the commission. Had the commission read through the Flathead agents' reports from the, from the decade leading up to uh, the, their creation, they would have seen that it was highly unlikely that they would be successful in their negotiations. <clears throat> in 1887, for example, Agent Peter Ronan at Flathead reported that tribal members were averse to allotment and viewed the Dawes Act with suspicion. Five years later, he reported that tribal, tribal leaders were, were bitterly opposed to allotments so much so that the, po the topic was unpopular to discuss publicly. Ronan's successor, Joseph Carter, likewise reported ex the extreme unpopularity of allotment among tribal members, and in 1897 reported on the CSKT's strong aversion and opposition to the sale of any portion of their lands. <clears throat> Despite this clear uh, tribal opposition to allotment and the inability of a congressionally authorized committee to negotiate a land sale and allotment agreement with the, with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. Uh, Congress was handed a gift by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1903. 
with the ruling in, in the case Lone Wolf v. Hitchcock, which did not have anything to do with Flathead. It was a lawsuit brought by the Kiowa tribe to challenge the validity of an 1892 agreement. However, it had broad impacts uh, on, on Indian lands nationwide. In particular, the Supreme Court in this 1903 ruling held that Congress had plenary power to dispose of Indian lands without tribal consent. Historians have said that the impact of this 1903 ruling was that it, that it allowed Congress to force the individual allotment of land and the sale of so-called surplus lands without tribal consent. This is exactly what happened on the Flathead Reservation through the 1904 Flathead Allotment Act. Interestingly, the first bill that was proposed by, by first-term Senator or Congressman uh, Joseph Dixon at the end of 1903 actually contained a tribal consent provision. However, in reporting on, the, on this bill, Secretary of the Interior Ethan Hitchcock told Dixon that the consent provision was unnecessary and that the bill without the consent provision would fully safeguard and protect the rights and interests of the Flathead Indians. Thus, quote, there is no occasion for presenting the matter to the Indians for the purpose of procuring their consent, unquote. The House and Senate committees, meanwhile, who reported on, on the, uh, the bill before it became law, they claimed that the, that the allotment law at Flathead had fulfilled Article Six of the Hellgate Treaty which I think is an unequivocally suspect reading of that article, given that Article 6 only authorized the president to allot lands to, quote, willing tribal members. It's also worth noting that those House and Senate committee reports um, estimated that only about 10% of the lands within the roughly 1.3 or 1.4 million acre Flathead Reservation would be allotted. So Congress was well aware of what it was doing in terms of dispossessing tribal, uh, the tribe of its lands, given that one point, uh, and given that an estimated 1.2 to 1.3 million acres would be surplus and open to non-Indian settlement. To outline a few of the major provisions of the Flathead Allotment Act, uh, first, the reservation would be surveyed. After the surveys, allotments would be selected and, and by all persons having tribal rights on the reservation. And the allotments were to be made within or in the amounts outlined by the Dawes Act. After the allotments were selected, the, the quote-unquote surplus lands would be divided into five categories and appraised by a five-person commission. Once the allotments were approved and trust patents were issued, the president was to open the, quote, surplus lands to settlement and entry by proclamation, with the lands, the surplus lands, to be offered for sale at appraised value set by the commission. A couple of other important uh, uh, aspects of the Flathead Allotment Act included, one, the ability for the Secretary of the Interior to use up to half, at, at least initially it was up to half of the proceeds from the sale of, of surplus lands within the reservation for the construction of an irrigation system. Four years after the passage of the act, Congress amended this provision to, look, to allow the secretary to use all of the proceeds from surplus land sales to pay for the construction of what has now 
what, what is now known as the Flathead Indian Irrigation Project, or FIP. I think it's also important to note out note that the this uh, that this reflects the a deep connection between the allotment policies of the early 20th century and federal efforts to irrigate lands, um, and that there was an inextricable linkage between irrigation and allotment within the U.S.'s broader assimilationist agenda. The the last thing that I'll mention about the Allotment Act itself is that the U.S. would only act as a trustee in the, in the sale of surplus lands. It did not promise to purchase lands outright from the tribe, nor did it per, uh, promise to find buyers for the lands that it was opening. Thus, any surplus lands that didn't sell after they were opened by proclamation would remain part of the tribal estate. So how did this play out on the ground? Well, by the end of 1907, the survey work preparatory to allotment was done, the tribal census had been completed, and the original allotment selections had been made by tribal members, such that by June 1908, the Interior Department had approved uh, a list of nearly 2,400 allotments on the reservation. Around the same time, the Appraisal Commission began its work in appraising the value of the so-called surplus lands within the reservation. As these efforts moved forward, CSKT opposition to the allotment and the sale of its surplus lands intensified. I'll give you a few examples of this um, that I think are particularly compelling. In July 1908, a petition signed by nearly 100 tribal members was sent to the Indian office in DC in which tribal members strongly indicated their opposition to allotment and told the Commissioner of Indian Affairs that their understanding of the 1855 treaty was that it would be their, their lands, the reservation would be theirs forever. In response, the Acting Commissioner of Indian Affairs simply replied that under Lone Wolf v. Hitchcock, Congress had, had the right to, quote, abrogate the provisions of an Indian treaty and that Congress had decided it was for the best interest of the CSKT to allot and open the reservation's lands. Thus, the tribal members were advised to, quote, accept the new conditions which Congress, to further your interests, has established, unquote. Tribal members did not take this laying down, though. By October 1908, two tribal members had left the reservation without uh, obtaining a BIA permit, which was then required to do so, and they paid their own travel expenses to, to go to Washington, D.C. to tell the commissioner directly that they did not want the reservation opened or allotted, but instead wanted it retained for our children in order that they may hunt and fish as did their parents. Once again, the BIA simply told these tribal members to, quote, go back to your people and advise them to cheerfully accept the situation, unquote. <clears throat> In addition to this clear op tribal opposition to allotment, there were also problems with the allotments themselves. Uh, in particular, there were a large number of allotments that were apparently not located as intended by the Indians on the ground. In addition, there were several hundred allotments that conflicted with the proposed reservoir sites that had been uh, outlined by Bureau of Reclamation officials for the nascent FIP irrigation system 
This, in turn, required tribal members to give up the lands that they had actually selected as their own allotments and accept new lands elsewhere. Several of these CSKT allottees refused to give up their recently allotted lands, with one allottee telling the agent that he didn't want any allotment given him in the first place, but as long as it was seen fit to, to allot him, he intends to keep what was given him. These issues Congress ultimately resolved by passing a law allowing the Secretary of the Interior to simply condemn the lands and pay damages to the tribal members who refused to relinquish allotments within these reservoir sites. Despite these problems, and despite the, the uh, ongoing and stringent op tribal opposition, the Interior Department approved by 1909 more than 2,400 allotments covering about 230,000 acres within the reservation. Most of the lands, uh, most of the allotments made to the to CSKT tribal members uh, had trust patents issued in October 1908, and they included the standard 25-year trust restrictions against sale, taxation, and mortgaging. I think it's important to point out that given the date of these trust patents, if the 25-year trust patent trust period uh, on, that was required by law had remained intact, CSKT allotments would have been in trust at least through October of 1933, by which time John Collier had become the Commissioner of Indian Affairs and had begun outlining what he, what he termed the Indian New Deal, which culminated in the passage of the Indian Reorganization Act in June of 1934. Given this chronology, I think it's reasonable to say that without the U.S.'s early 1900s fee patenting policies, all of the original CSKT allotments would have remained in trust today, given that the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act extended the trust period indefinitely on all Indian lands that remained in trust as of the date of that law's passage. Even this, however, would not have saved the more than 1.1 million acres of, of so-called surplus lands from opening to non-Indian settlement. This happened under, the, under a May 1909 proclamation issued by President William Taft, um, which led to the opening of lands in May of 1910. Um, and this impending opening of reservation lands once again sparked another round of CSKT protests including another attempt to send a delegation to DC and myriad protest letters uh, one particularly compelling one, uh, in my view, was, was a letter written to President Taft three weeks before the reservation was opened to non-Indian settlement, in which this, this particular tribal member, Sam Resurrection, pleaded for help from the, quote, robbers and thieves coming onto the reservation and telling Taft that our reservation is our greatest power and, and all of us Indians don't want our reservation opened. Once again, uh, the response from BIA was that to the C to these CSKT protesters was that it was quote useless to send more complaints requesting a general restoration of reservation lands to tribal to tribal ownership. So to give you a, a visual depiction of what this meant, um, I've got a series of three maps here that I think will help. Uh, help show, show what was happening 
with respect to allotment and, and surplus land sales of Flathead. This is a 1908 map which shows in white all of the lands that were selected originally as allotments by tribal members. All of the blue areas within the rest of the reservation depict the 1.1 or 1.2 million acres of land that were opened to uh, non-Indian settlement in, in 1910. The next map is a 1909 map of the fifth irrigation system. And the reason I wanted to show this is just to uh, indicate visually what I, what I mentioned before, which is this, this linkage between allotment and irrigation. As you can see, um, if you go back and forth between these two maps, many of the allotments, these white areas here, line up with the areas that were intended to be included as irrigable lands within the FIP irrigation system. This is another map of the FIP irrigation system in 1914, and this shows, um, it, this demonstrates that point perhaps even more clearly. Uh, these yellow areas are actually the lands that were allotted and were expected to be irrigated within the FIP system while the orange, I'm colorblind, so if it's red, forgive me. <laughs> but these uh, orange or red areas are the lands that were uh, expected to be irrigable from the irrigation system that would be sold, or that were non-Indian farm units or homesteads. So what this map shows is that at least half, if not more, actually more according to some documents from this period, which I'll discuss later, um, at least half if not more of the, land, of the irrigable lands under the, under the FIP irrigation system were originally intended to be Indian allotments. So you can use the, the uh, reports related to the lessening number of Indian lands within FIP as, a, as another way to track the impact of, of allotment and fee patenting on the Flathead Reservation. Now it's important to point out that before Cato Sells uh, became the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, there was authority to issue fee patents to uh, Indian allottees um, under the 1906 Burke Act. Um, under that law, Congress allowed the Secretary to issue fee patents to Indian allottees who he deemed competent. However, um, under the administrations that, that preceded Cato Sells, in particular the, uh, the administration of Commissioner of Indian Affairs Robert Valentine, um, the BIA tended to adopt a more cautious or conservative approach with respect to the issuance of fee patents. Um, this was evidenced in particular by the uh, the denial of 60% of fee patent applications between 1909 and 1912 nationally, um, also reflected by the denial of, of half of, of CSKT fee patent applications in 1912. When Cato Sells came into power as the head of the BIA, um, along with Franklin Lane at the head of the Interior Department in 1913, 
this represented a dramatic shift away from this more cautious and conservative approach to fee patenting under Commissioner Valentine. And between 1913 and 1920, you see a significant increase in uh, the fee patenting of lands to, to Indian allottees nationwide. In 1914, Franklin Lane recommended, uh, as one way of expediting fee patenting, um, he recommended the creation of what he called competency commissions, which would go out to reservations and, in an attempt to judge Alati's capability of receiving fee patents and bearing the burdens of taxation, mortgaging, and leasing without government supervision. One of the first of these uh, competency commissions visited the Flathead Reservation in September of 1915. While en route to Flathead, uh, the, the leader of this uh, competency commission, Major James McLaughlin, received a proposal from, from Secretary Lane to hold what he called a ceremonial ritual upon the issuance of fee patents by the competency commission. The ritual proposed by Lane included uh, using the following emblems, which were intended to mark the change that was taking place for the, for the so-called competent fee-patented allottees. The first of these was for the Indian to shoot, quote, his last arrow and take hold of a plow, after which he would receive a flag, a purse, and a badge of citizenship. Writing back to Secretary Lane while he was at Flathead, um, uh, Major McLaughlin said, I can't think of anything that might be added to the ritual that would be more impressive than as covered by your proposed ceremony. McLaughlin's Competency Commission held one of these ceremonial rituals on the Flathead Reservation in June of 1916. He estimated that 400 people attended the ceremony and claimed that the participants engaged in it very earnestly. The Missoulian, meanwhile, reported that it, quote, symbolized the enfranchisement of a race, the elevation of the Indian to equal footing. <clears throat> Although McLaughlin's competency commission did not result in the, in the issuance of a large number of fee patents, only 20, I think, um, McLaughlin reported that many other fully competent uh, CSKT allottees had, quote, declined at this time to apply for fee patents. And this was reflected in the fact that between 1913 and 1916, there were about 250 uh, allotments for which fee patents were issued, covering um, roughly 24,000 acres, about double the amount in the previous four years under Commissioner Valentine's administration. Uh, meanwhile, Superintendent Morgan, uh, Fred Morgan at the Flathead Agency reported that most of the fee patented allotments at Flathead were, quote, sold as soon as patented to non-Indians. But he claimed that, that tribal members were at least obtaining good prices for their lands. When Sells issued his Declaration of Policy in 1917, CSKT allottees were among the tribal members nationwide who were particularly affected due to the predominance of mixed-blood allottees on the reservation. In 1899, one Indian agent had reported that nearly half of the reservation's population was of mixed or mixed uh, ancestry. Moreover, the 1917 Declaration of Policy was also used 
to forcibly issue fee patents to CSKT allottees who had previously refused to apply for them. Superintendent Theodore Sharp at the Flathead Agency urged the appointment of a new competency commission in 1916 uh, in order to issue fee patents to, quote, Indians who are competent but refuse to make application for patent in order to avoid paying taxes. Meanwhile, allottees continued to oppose Sell's forced fee patenting policies, telling their agent that the U.S. has no right to issue fee patents unless tribal members apply for the same. However, it was nearly impossible to avoid the issuance of these forced fee patents. During 1926 congressional hearings, one CSKT attorney told, the, told congressmen that some of the Indians would not take their patents but they were told that if the patent was not issued or application made, their land would be seized and taken just the same, so they might as well take their patents. In 1918, Superintendent Sharp gleefully reported on the issuance of, of 105 forced fee patents under Sell's new policy without any applications being made for them. And as you can see, there were at least 900, some some reports suggest a thousand original CSKT allotments were fee patented between the issuance of the trust patents in 1908 and 1920. This represented roughly 40% of the allotments and 40% of the acreage of the allotted acreage within the reservation. As I mentioned before, another way to track the impact of fee patenting is through the declining acreage of irrigable Indian lands within FIT. As you can see here, between 1914 and 1964, there was a precipitous drop in the acreage of irrigable Indian lands within the FIP irrigation system, dropping from 97,000 acres in 1914 to 16,560 acres in 1964 was a big drop you see reported during or around the time of Cato Sell's administration. This map also provides a nice visual depiction of the impact of allotment and fee patenting at Flathead. In particular, uh, note that the red, the red lands, pretty sure they're red, um, of which there were a reported nearly 640 15,000 acres. These, these red areas are reported as lands alienated by sale or fee patent. So these are the lands that were either open to non-Indians and sold or had been fee patented to, to Indians and sold to non-Indians. Meanwhile, the blue and yellow areas are the lands that remained in trust for Indian allottees. One thing to note with respect to the blue areas in particular was that there was actually a second round of allotment that occurred um, under a 1920 law. So there are a lot more blue lands which, which reflect uh, allotments held by living allottees than probably would have been in 1928 had that second round of allotment not occurred. The green areas here represent lands that were never sold to non-Indians and remained in tribal, tribal control. And you'll note that these are mostly like timber, mountainous lands along the Mission Divide and along other uh, mountain ranges within the reservation.
1921, Cato Sells' successor, Charles Burke, overturned his 1917 Declaration of Policy. Um, Burke, who actually was the author of the 1906 Burke Act, which initially authorized the issuance of fee patents, um, he claimed that Sells' 1917 policy, Declaration of Policy was a violation of the intent of his 1906 Act. Um, under the Burke administration, the issuance of fee patents slowed, and Burke tried to begin uh, efforts to return fee patented lands into trust status. However, the forced fee patenting that had occurred already had inflicted significant damage on CSKT Alates and the Flathead Reservation in general. By the end of the 1920s, the Flathead Agency's superintendent reported roughly one half of the original CSKT allotments had been fee patented, and of those, uh, an estimated 80% had been sold to non-Indian purchasers, primarily as a result of mortgage foreclosures or through the non-payment of property taxes. By 1934, there was finally a shift away from the assimilation policies of the early 1900s through the passage of the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act. It did a lot of things, but I'll point out three that are particularly important with respect to my uh, study. One is that it halted allotment nationwide. Two, the 34 law extended the trust period indefinitely on all lands that remained in trust at the time of its passage. And three, it created a mechanism for tribes to reacquire lands lost through surplus land sales and allotment fee patenting. However, I think it's important to point out and to end with the point that tribes' abilities to recover from the devastating impacts of allotment, surplus land sales, and forced fee patenting would be a long and difficult process that in many respects continues to this day. Thank you.